Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello, and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Uh, Today we're going to be teaching through the book of James, chapter 2, and I'll be reading through the international version. So let's jump right in and get started. I'm reading verses 1 through 4 of James, chapter 2, from the international version. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, here James is dealing with the issue of prejudice, a very relevant issue uh, in our in our time, Uh, prejudice and discrimination among believers. Uh, Rich people receive preferential treatment in this world over the poor and um, all over the world. Rich people get preferential uh, treatment, whether they whether they deserve it or not. They they get the uh, the greatest courtesy. They get the highest degree of honor and respect, while poor people uh, are disrespected and unappreciated. So uh, James wanted to make it clear that among God's people, this cannot be. This should not be. This must not be. The rich are respected regardless of how they got their their wealth. Uh, People grovel and kowtow uh, before the wealthy. Uh, But James is letting us know that it's a terrible sin to favor rich people over poor people. Um, In his church and kingdom, God wants us to treat everybody exactly alike. Without consideration to their wealth or social status, everybody is important. God wants us to see from his perspective. And from God's perspective, the rich are as valuable as the poor. Everyone is precious. Wealth doesn't increase a person's standing in the sight of God. In the church, no one should be uh, catered to because of their wealth, and no one should be slighted because of their poverty or or lack of wealth. Uh, um, If we do, if we cater to the wealthy, then we're sinning. That's what Jane wants to make clear. Um, When we seek to befriend rich people over the poor, our motives are selfish and, and, and they're impure. You're based on a desire to some degree to gain. That's a selfish motive. Perhaps um, our motive may be to just to gain recognition for uh, hobnobbing with the rich, or, or perhaps we want some favor from the rich. Uh, there's, a, there's a hidden motive in our hearts when we favor rich people over poor people. But uh, we're deceived into thinking that rich people, just by virtue of their wealth, deserves uh, more respect and honor 
than poor people. And this is just dead wrong. The Apostle Paul also addressed the tendency to favor uh, to, to, uh, to favor the rich. In addition to James, Paul talked about this uh, favor of the rich, how people tend to favor the rich over the poor. And he wrote, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's in Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Catering to rich people is, is as carnal as drunkenness or sexual immorality or sexual immorality or any other besetting sin. It's wrong. And uh, this kind of attitude opposes the ways and the will of God and his kingdom. God's kingdom is not about putting rich people over poor people, about kowtowing and, and scraping before rich people. In the kingdom of God, we are all equal in our value before him. Now, James is not degrading the rich here. He He's actually elevating the poor. He commands us to raise the poor to the status of the rich in our, in our thinking and and on our actions. We are to uh, not disrespect the rich. We are to respect the poor. Instead of extending less respect and courtesy to rich people, uh, we should extend an equal amount of these considerations to poor people. So everybody deserves honor and respect. Instead of treating the rich like the poor, we should treat the, the poor like the rich. That's what James is telling us. Everyone should be treated with the highest degree of, of respect and esteem, because in the eyes of God, everybody is equal. Now I'm reading verses five through seven. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are uh, dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James is continuing his discourse, uh, his argument against preferential treatment to rich people. Uh, and he's uh, asking the, the saints who were hobnobbing with the rich and kowtowing before the rich, he, he reminded them of uh, how God highly prizes poor people. Uh, and then, then he was also reminding them of how rich people treat the poor and also how they, they treat the people of God. Um, um, so James rebukes the saints for falling into the value, uh, in, into, uh, failing to see the, the, the value of the, of poor people. They had, uh, been expressing their disdain for the, for the poor and they had been insulting them and uh, treating them as if they, they had no value. Uh, and so he is uh, reminding them that the people that they are um, really giving the highest degree of, of respect have not been deserving of that respect. And uh, uh, again, James wants us to, to treat everybody alike. Okay. James reminded them of how they, they had often been dragged into court by the, by the, the rich people, how they had been a, a press by the rich people, how um, the name of Jesus had often been blasphemed by, by rich, unbelieving people. Uh, and then he's showing them that these people are not worthy of the respect that you're showing them. 
And at the same time that you're respecting people who degrade God and degrade the things of God and and uh, disrespect the people of God, you're, you're kowtowing to these people who are undeserving of it. James is suggesting that rich people are not deserving of honor and respect solely because they happen to be rich, okay? And poor people should not be disrespected and insulted just because they are poor. Everyone, and I'm repeating this almost to the point of redundancy, everyone should be treated with equal respect. That is the way of the kingdom of God. Now I'm reading verses 8 through 12. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. <clears throat> but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumble at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So Jane provides us with a rule of thumb that every Christian should use in their interactions with other people. That rule of thumb is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Jane refers to this commandment as the law that gives liberty because it is it is the one law that fulfills all of God's requirements. So, uh, and it frees us from the bondage of the Mosaic law. So, if we determine in our in our lives that we're going to treat everyone the way we want to be treated, not the way they treat us, but everyone the way um, that we want them uh, to treat us. That's that's the golden rule. If we treat everybody the way we would like to be treated, um, then that's a that's a, a rule of thumb that we can live by. And in doing that, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, we're fulfilling all of God's royal law. That that law of liberty that frees us from the bondage of of uh, observing all of the uh, laws that were given by Moses. We treat everyone, rich or poor, black or white, as we want to be treated, then we will not discriminate against people because uh, we don't want to be discriminated against. It's a terrible thing. I've, I've experienced discrimination. I was raised in the, in the South and I was raised under segregation, the laws of segregation that impose upon African-Americans, the idea that they were not as valuable as our Caucasian brothers and sisters. So I've experienced that. And, and my experience through the laws of segregation and, and uh, all of the racism that, uh, uh, that I've experienced in my life has given me a, uh, a keen sense of justice and, and fairness. Okay, So uh, I understand what James is saying here. He wants the church to operate uh, in a place where there is no discrimination, where everyone is, is taken uh, on an equal basis. Um, everyone is not judged by the color of their skin, but by accepted by, for, for who they are in Christ. It's important to weigh and, and reflect upon our treatment of others at all times and to ask ourselves, is this the way that I would want someone to treat me? That's a good way 
to determine whether or not we're doing the right thing as it regards to how we treat other people. It's important to practice empathy and place ourselves in other people's shoes and um, um, the people that we come into contact with to to, uh, place ourselves in their position. So the law of liberty should be our our guiding principle in everything that we do. And that law of liberty, again, tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do unto others, Jesus said in the King James, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, James reminds us that if we practice discrimination, we're sinning and breaking God's law. He further reminds us that when we break one of God's laws, uh, we're guilty of breaking every one of them. This is especially relevant to those who were insisting on trying to keep the Mosaic law and trying to be justified by keeping the uh, the law of Moses. James is letting them know that you can't be justified by the law of Moses. And this is how um, a good place where James um, uh, harmonizes with Paul's teachings about uh, salvation by grace through faith. James, who talks a lot about works, is now letting those who think they can depend on the law of Moses for justification and salvation, he's letting them know that you can't do it because uh, if you just keep all of God's laws perfect, but just break one little law, then you're guilty of breaking them all. And you are, uh, you are not worthy of, of salvation. You're not worthy if, you, if you're depending on the law. So we're not depending on uh, sinless perfection. We're not depending on the Mosaic law. Uh, we're depending on, on the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Our faith is in him. Some scholars suggested that James and Paul were at odds because James placed such a strong emphasis upon good works and Paul strongly emphasized liberty and grace. Okay. So however, uh, uh, Paul and James were advocates of the grace and the liberty uh, of the new covenant that it demonstrated by good works or proper Christian conduct. So um, our faith is demonstrated by, by the life that we live, the good works that we do, but we don't earn heaven. This passage is a demonstration of that harmony, that harmony between Paul and James, how that uh, you cannot rely on the Mosaic law. And now, this was a kind of a sobering thought to the Jewish people who, who thought they could rely on the law. They thought they were keeping the law so well that they were pleasing God because they were keeping the law. And James gives them this sobering reminder. Okay, now, so you're keeping the law and you think that you're doing well. But if you just mess up in one little point, then you're guilty of breaking all the laws. So if you're counting on living a perfect life to please God, you've already failed. And that's the point that James is making. Now, although Christians are are not under the law, we're not under the law anymore, not the law of Moses, we are reminded that mistreatment of the poor makes us lawbreakers. James places those who discriminate against the poor in the same company with adulterers and and murderers. He's he's attempting to, to show us the seriousness of the sin of discrimination against poor people. And I would say that would be, that would carry over to all people. Uh, If you're carrying racial discrimination in your heart or racial prejudice in your heart, it's a serious sin. Uh, uh, James would put it right in 
with the other serious sins, adultery and murder. So don't think that you can just be prejudiced and bigoted uh, against people, uh, either because of their social standing, their financial standing, or because of their race, and, and think that that's a minor sin. It's a serious sin to discriminate. Now I'm reading verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay. Now the rich were often merciless toward the poor. So James warns them that they will be judged without mercy if they don't show mercy in the way that they live. They don't show mercy to the people who are under them, uh, who are subordinate to them, then God will not show mercy to them as they are subordinate to God, okay? When James says mercy triumphs over judgment, he means that if we practice showing mercy to others, God will show mercy to us rather than judgment. If we are people of mercy, uh, the mercy that we demonstrate to others will overrule God's judgment against us, okay? Jesus said this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, okay? That's Matthew chapter five, verse seven in the King James Version. So mercy rejoices, rejoices against judgment. Um, there, even now, in the last week, uh, we have all, Christians, have done things that if we were judged for those things, we would make it to heaven. None of us are good enough to, to, to make it to heaven. But we are, uh, we are elected. We are allowed into the kingdom of God because of the mercy that he extended to us through offering his son, Jesus Christ. Now, God didn't withhold his son from us. He sent Jesus to die in our place and to pay for the sins that we have committed. Now, if that's the case, how dare we hold against people things that they've done to us? Uh, if we are merciless against other people, then God is going to be merciless to us when the time comes to judge. He's going to uh, remember uh, our, our, uh, our offenses. This law is referred to as the law that set people free, that, uh, the law that gives liberty. Um, because it frees people again from the Mosaic law. The, 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 the law of love, love your neighbor as yourself, is a summary of all of the law and all of the prophets. It's the only law we need to observe and to obey. So if we are determining to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we are fulfilling all of the requirements of God's law. God demonstrated his love and mercy to, towards us, and he expects us to extend that same love and mercy to others, especially the poor, because the poor get get dumped on in, in, in so many ways by so many people. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be uh, full of mercy and, and, and full of kindness. That's the way we are to live our lives. Now I'm reading verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, 
keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So now James makes it clear that true faith must be demonstrated or proven by the way we actively live our lives, okay? If there is no action accompanying a person's profession of faith, then, then there is no evidence that they have faith at all, that their faith is real. And actually, James says their faith is dead. If they say that they are Christians, but you can't see any evidence of it in their lives, they have dead faith. James suggests that the life of faith is action or good works. Faith is proven by good works, uh, by the way we conduct ourselves. Um, if, if, uh, if, if there is no change in a person's life from doing evil to doing good, then that person's faith is dead. There's no, no transition. No change. The Bible says, if any person be in Christ, any man be in Christ in the King James, uh, which means man or woman, whoever is in Christ, if there, if, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. So when we really have faith in Christ, it's going to show in the life that we live. Dead faith can't help anyone or save anyone. Faith without works is empty, it's dead. Any profession of faith that is not accompanied by action, that is good works, good conduct, is only empty talk. It is as empty as and worthless as, as, as telling a naked, hungry person to be warmed and fed and giving them nothing. That's, a, that's an empty act. It's almost an insult if someone comes to you hungry and naked and you have the means to help them. But instead of helping them, you say, okay, go be warmed, go be fed. You're insulting them. It's a way of telling them, I'm not going to help you. So it, that's empty. That's, that's, uh, that's vain. That's void. That's worthless. And so is the faith of people who have nothing to show to prove that they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm reading verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Okay. Now, James is not suggesting that a person has to do good deeds to earn salvation. Now, he clearly understood that we could never earn salvation by the good that we do. We can't do enough good to pay our way to heaven. But James is telling us that once we are saved, we have a responsibility to do good, to do good works, to conduct ourselves in a Christian manner. And those good works prove that we are saved. They don't save us. They provide evidence that we are saved. Okay, that's the difference. So people who are trying to be saved by the good works, you'll never make it that way. But it is important to have good works and to do what is right because it, it gives the evidence of our faith. Our good works, our good conduct is the evidence of our faith. Faith is like 
the wind. It's invisible. It's not discernible. Um, people often make the mistake of thinking that uh, they see the wind when what they really see is the wind's effect upon things. So faith is like that. We can't see it. <clears throat> but we can see what it does. Uh, the wind uproots trees and and uh, blows debris around, and and we see that, and we and we say, look at the. We might say, look at the wind. Well, we can't see the wind. We see its effect, and that's the way faith is. Faith has to have effect, uh, or or it's empty. It's vain. Okay. Now, throughout New Testament history, there have been those who who have confessed to be Christians, but their lives have produced absolutely no evidence of that fact. Some people wrongly believe that works have absolutely no place in a Christian's life. Uh, they're saying it's all by grace. Uh, God has forgiven us our sins, so it doesn't matter how you live. It's all by grace. Your sins are forgiven of past, present, and future. And that's true. But your evidence that your sins are forgiven is the kind of life that you've been transitioned into. <clears throat> You're no longer um, uh, under the burden, under the slavery to sin. We have been freed from sin to do good works, okay? So some people believe that salvation is all about faith, no works at all. Now, this confusion uh, began in the first century, but it's, it, it has survived until today. And in some circles, even today, people are, are saying they're downplaying works and they're saying it doesn't matter. So the Apostle James saw this error in his day, and he addressed it by bringing balance between the concepts of faith and works. Paul also made it clear that when a person places faith in Christ, he or she will experience a transformation from the old way of life to the new way of life. They are not the same person anymore. They are, born, they are new creations in Christ Jesus, Paul says. What Paul is describing is a person who's been transformed and now exhibits good fruit or good works. He's describing the, the new life that the new believer now has. So when we come to Christ, um, a part of the gift of salvation is new life in Christ. It's abundant life. It's a life that has been recast into a godly lifestyle. Uh, to do the, what, what is good and what is what is right and what is pleasing in God's sight. So without this new life, there's no evidence that a person is a true believer. So Jesus said you, the way to know a person is by the, the fruit that they exhibit in their lives. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. In virtually every epistle written by the apostles, the saints were commanded to demonstrate a lifestyle change by turning away from the old lifestyle of wrongdoing to doing what is good and right and pleasing in God's sight. Uh, one powerful example of this can be found in the epistle of Paul to the saints at Ephesus. And here's what he, he wrote. He says, if you are a thief, stop stealing. Begin using your hands for honest work and then give generously to others. That's in Ephesians 4.28. So as soon as a person became a believer, he or she was commanded to live a, a lifestyle that demonstrated that belief. Every Christian is commanded to, leave the, to lead the kind of life 
that is worthy of the calling to which we are called. And it says that in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Now in his epistle to Timothy, Paul wrote these words, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and those who claim they belong to the Lord must turn away from all wickedness. That's 2 Timothy 2.19. So Paul and James are in perfect agreement. Even with all these admonitions from the apostles for Christians to lead godly lives, it's important to remember that good works, I'll say it again, good works or good deeds do not earn salvation. They only prove salvation. They only demonstrate salvation. They illustrate the fact that we are saved because our lives have been transformed. Good works that we uh, we do, that we're commanded to do after receiving Christ, although they're flawed and they're imperfect, they're the sign that we are really saved. Okay, now I'm reading verses 21 through 24. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So James brings even greater focus upon the point of his argument here, that faith must be substantiated and demonstrated with actions by reminding us of why Abraham was declared to be righteous. Abraham demonstrated his faith in God by his action. Abraham had been following God for many years and demonstrating his faith by his action and obedience and, and trust along the way. You know, God told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land which I will show you. Okay, God didn't even tell him where he was going. He just told him to pack up and go. But what did Abraham do? He obeyed God. He packed up and he left. That was a demonstration of his faith. His actions demonstrated his faith. He could have sat there and say, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. And sat there and did nothing. That would have been dead faith. But because he got up, moved, God showed him along the way, every step of the way, God gave him a little bit more revelation. That's the way it is in life. Can't expect for God to show us the whole package until we begin to move, we begin to act and do what he says. And as we do what he says, believing him, along the way, he'll allow uh, a revelation of what he wants us to do, his plan, it will gradually unfold, okay? He doesn't give all the information up front. Now, Abraham had been following God all these years. And uh, there was some time that his he doubted and his faith was shaky in some areas, but he con he consistently followed God. He when he fell down, if he doubted, he got back up. Okay, he followed God's plan uh, and did what God said uh, uh, for him to do. And as a result, his faith had grown and developed. And when Abraham's faith was strongest, when it was at its at its peak. God commanded him to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Okay, take him up 
on on the mountain and uh, you know put him on the altar, put the wood on the altar, and I want you to cut his throat. I want you to kill him, and I want you to burn him like a burnt sacrifice. Okay. So now Abraham followed God's uh, command, took his son all the way up. Um, prepared this, his son as a sacrifice, laid him on the altar, drew the knife, and was getting ready to slay his son. And, of course, God God stopped him. And in doing that, God was, was symbolizing the fact that he was going to offer his son as a sacrifice for all of us. He went all the way with, with Jesus and offered him for us. Abraham was typifying that without knowing it. Because he had the utmost level of confidence in God, Abraham was able to reason that since God uh, had promised that his son Isaac would uh, would be the promised seed and from him would uh, would come the the blessed people uh, and and through him would come uh, the Lord Jesus Christ Abraham was able to reason that well if I kill him then God will have to to raise him up because God is true to his word um, and so the Bible says in Hebrews in a figure that's what happened uh, because Abraham was 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 determined that he was going to slay the boy because God had said it. He demonstrated his trust in God. Now, these were the thoughts that con- that uh, comforted Abraham while he was obeying God. He was reasoning this thing through. His faith had been tested, and it passed the test. The test of Abraham's faith was his actions. God had to show uh, that Abraham would act to obey the command to slay his son and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, God knows the the ending from the beginning. God knew what the outcome was going to be. But he had to establish these things for Abraham, for, uh, for history, for us to go back and look at. He had to lay these things down. He had to establish them and, and, uh, and put them in as, as oracles for us to, to read and be directed by. Uh, he had to establish these things in history and have them done. Abraham proved to everyone who would hear his story that he believed God uh, by taking action and uh, by obeying God's commands. Now, he could have uh, declared his faith all day long and not moved, but his faith would have been dead. His faith was not living until he obeyed God. Okay. Without actions or obedience, to, uh, to back up our faith, we really have no faith. It's, it's our active response to God's directives that illustrate our faith. People cannot see our faith without some kind of act of obedience. We cannot show people our faith without our works because such faith does not exist. People make all kinds of wild claims about all sorts of things. There are, there are those who claim to be able to defy gravity. But there, there's one way, one sure way to be certain or to demonstrate that they can defy, uh, defy gravity and fly. Let them do it. Just do it. Okay. Now, verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So James doubles down with his, uh, his argument about faith and works. And he gives another example of faith proven by works. Rahab the harlot, when Joshua and the Israelites were coming into to Jericho to, to invade that 
that uh, city and, and destroy it and take it over. Rahab was a citizen of that city, and she demonstrated her faith by hiding the spies, by working with them. She knew that, that they were the winning team, and she decided to cross over to the winning team. She demonstrated her faith. She was a prostitute and demonstrated her faith by, um, by working with God, by helping God, by siding with God. And despite the fact that she was a prostitute, God blessed her, God saved her, and actually she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She became the great, 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 great grandmother way up the line uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So her decision was not a religious one, but a practical one. She wanted survival for herself and for her family. And because she believed God, she acted, she risked her life by committing treason against the nation, that wicked nation. And uh, she sided with the people of God. And because she acted, then God blessed her. Now, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. But James closes his argument with a comparison between a dead body and dead faith. The spirit is what animates the flesh. It is what gives life to our body. So a body with no spirit is as dead as a stick of wood. It's, it's, it's not animated. Uh, it is, it's dead. And so James is using this same argument here to, uh, to help us to understand, finalize his argument that faith without works is as dead as a body without the spirit. Okay. Now that brings us to the close of, uh, chapter two of the book of James. Next time we'll study chapter three. If you live in the Indianapolis area, I want to invite you to come worship with us at New Direction Church, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the pastor. We have two campuses now in Indianapolis, uh, uh, in the Indianapolis area. We're at uh, 5330 East 38th Street, New Direction East, and then New Direction North is at 7701 East 86th Street on the corner of 86th and Hague Road. Um, I'd love to see you at one of our services. Until next time, I want to say to you, God bless you and may God keep you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune in to our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.